Today we finish up our sermon series through the Gospel according to John. It's been a long year and a half, almost two years, that we've been looking at it. Last week we saw the resurrected Jesus restore Peter after he uh, denied him three times on the night of his crucifixion. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And restored him by charging him to feed his sheep. And we come to the very last passage of John's Gospel. And it makes me ask this question. If you were writing a story or recording a gospel account, your main character, the last words that they say would need to be something important, something powerful and lasting, right? What would those words be? Let's find out what we hear from Jesus in the last lines of John's gospel. We're going to pick up a little bit of our, ver- our passages from last week, and then we'll continue on to the end. So John chapter 21, beginning in verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now there also are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please join me as I pray for us this morning. Oh God, we're thankful that you sent your Son to us to find us, to come to us, to search us out. We pray this morning as we hear these last words recorded for us in John's Gospel, that we would feel the Spirit moving in us, that we would sense you drawing us to yourself, that we would hear and be renewed by the words of Jesus this morning. I pray that my words fall to the floor and only your words remain. And I pray this in the mighty name of your Son. Amen. I play on a rec softball team with some of the folks from my gym, and I will tell you, I am not particularly good. I find my role on the team to be the encourager, the levity bringer. I'm the one that gets our team laughing, makes sure everybody's feeling good about themselves when things aren't going well, because I'm not super fast. I'm not incredibly accurate when I throw. I can throw really hard, but there's no telling where it's going to go. Uh, and I'm certainly a subpar batter. Uh, but I've noticed something when I walk up to the plate with my bat in hand, everyone on the team has something to say to me about what I should do, right? Don't swing too early. Uh, this pitcher, she's throwing the ball short, so swing a little bit earlier. Lead with your hands, lead with your hips. 
Uh, just uh, try and hit the ball into left center. There's a big gap there. We got two outs, so no matter what, on contact, run as fast as you can. All of these things going on in my head, I'm trying to do all of them at the same time. And so this comes out. No matter what, I generally just dribble the ball past the, the pitcher up towards the shortstop, and if I'm lucky, they fumble it and I make it to first base. Now there is a time when I actually hit pretty well, and that's when our team is already up five or six runs. And the reality is, no matter what I do or don't do at the plate, has no impact on the score, has no impact on the morale of the team, and it doesn't change the momentum that we have already. And so it clears my head. It gives me just this peace and quiet inside, and I can just swing. Now, it doesn't mean that there's a difference in the outcome of the swing, but that's what I can do. Every aspect of our lives, likewise, has this overwhelming sense of noise to it, distractions, voices, opinions, views, critiques, false encouragement, lies, expectations, right? And realistically, living as a Christian is no different. There are so many things that tell you what your life should look like, so many voices, so many distractions. So what is that sweet spot where our hearts and our minds can be clear and quiet and we can simply engage with the rhythms of life as a child of God? Jesus lays it out here to Peter and John. In the final words of Jesus, the final words of John's gospel account, being a disciple of Jesus is portrayed simply and powerfully in a strikingly familiar way. Jesus tells Peter and John and all who have read these accounts since, follow me. That's it. Simple. Follow me. But if you put the emphasis on each of the words, it changes a little bit about how we are supposed to hear this. And so we're going to do that. We're going to look at this short invitation by emphasizing each of the two words and see what Jesus is inviting us into. Follow me and follow me. All right, so our first point, Jesus' invitation is follow me. Now these are not new words from Jesus. We hear Jesus say the same thing to the disciples when he first meets them. They're fishing, they're doing their own industry things. Jesus meets them and he says at the very beginning of his ministry, follow me. That's how he calls them to be disciples at the very beginning, follow me. And here at the very end, his last words are the same, follow me. Nothing has changed. Beginning and end are the same. But how different their lives have been between those two invitations. How many times have they probably thought, I'm following Jesus, I should be able to heal this person. We should have enough money to support that person. I should know my Torah better. I should know how to handle this better. They probably heard those same kinds of expectations and critiques and voices from other people. You really abandon your master? Are you sure you're a follower? Why are you still struggling with this thing? I thought you followed Jesus. All of these phrases that probably heaped up over their lives, and yet Jesus' invitation is so simple. Follow me. 
It's the same on day one as it is day 5001. The invitation to us is just as simple. Follow Jesus. Nothing more and nothing less. Throughout your whole life, when you, like John, are able to see Jesus clearly and know how He is at work, just as John did when they were on the boat and Jesus was on the shore, the invitation is follow me. After sinning and turning your back like Peter had done, coming to Jesus in repentance, Jesus' words are the same. Follow me throughout your whole life. Follow Jesus. Nothing has changed. And yet, everything has changed. When Jesus first invites the disciples to follow Him, they're fishing, they're doing their work, and Jesus is calling them away from it to follow Him throughout life on a journey of this teaching and miracle-working ministry. He's inviting them to follow Him, to grow, to learn, to have their eyes opened about who God is, have their lives completely changed. And that invitation sounds adventurous. That sounds exciting. But now, Jesus has been persecuted. He has suffered. He's died and risen from the dead. He's appeared to them, spoken with them, eaten with them, and He invites them to follow Him through all of that? That invitation sounds a little more intimidating, right? Follow me. But what am I getting myself into? Over spring break, uh, our family went down to Disneyland. It's the first time that I had ever been to Disney in California. But I grew up in Orlando going to Disney World all the time. So I was super excited to compare the two parks and how they were the same. And I haven't been to Disney since they changed the Tower of Terror into the Guardians of the Galaxy ride. If you haven't been on it, it's pretty awesome. Uh, I loved the Tower of Terror, and so I encouraged our family. we gotta, we got to do this. It's such a great ride. And they just blindly followed me onto the ride. I did not know what I had gotten us into. <laughs> it's the same kind of drop up and down, drop ride that it has always been, but I was unaware that my daughters in particular don't like rides like that. And so we uh, had one of the worst experiences of our lives. They followed me into this uh, doomsday device, basically. As soon as they said you can unbuckle your seatbelts, Margaret took off and ran out into the gift shop crying. We had to use like a shoehorn to pry Michaela out of her seat because she hated it just as much. We didn't know what we were getting into when they followed me. And to hear Jesus say, follow me, after what he has just been through can feel somewhat just as terrifying. If I do follow you, what exactly am I getting myself into? I don't know. But Jesus knows he knows where he's leading because he's been through it. He survived it. That's what gives his words in Matthew 16 a lot more power. When he says in Matthew 16, 25, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. He knows that process because he's experienced it. Right? He's talking about losing our old life, the life that is ruled by our own heart, our own flesh, our own sinful desires, and finding resurrection life, new life in Him. 
Jesus goes through death into resurrected life so that those who follow Him, follow Him through the losing of the old life and the receiving of resurrected life. One of my old pastors used to put it this way, the way up is down. Following Jesus into new life, into resurrected life, into righteousness, into newness and growth and maturity means following Him into sin-exposing, repentance-leaving, repenting, others-focused, self-denial, death. And death and resurrection of Jesus means that even though all of those things feel like death, in Jesus, they actually lead to life. That's the invitation that Jesus says, follow me. The problem is, for us, things have changed. And there's not a high likelihood that you, like the disciples, like Jesus, will be crucified for your faith. So we want to know, what exactly are we getting ourselves into? And we start to look to the lives of other people. Is that what following Jesus looks like? Is that what it should look like? Am I doing it the right way? Which is why we need the emphasis on the other part. Jesus says, follow me. But he also says, follow me. Jesus' invitation is, follow me. After he says this to Peter, Peter looks over his shoulder, and John is there, the beloved disciple. They've been in virtual competition throughout the entire gospel accounts, and John is always one step closer. He's always one point of connection closer, one right question, one right answer closer, and Peter is jealous. He's jealous of John. In fact, we know this because John uses the particular words that tell us he is already doing what Jesus just said. Jesus tells Peter, follow me. And then we see that Peter looks over his shoulder and what is John doing? Following. He's already doing it. That's why Peter says, what about this man? Peter's question is, is following you, Jesus, mean I have to follow him too? What's going to happen to him? You're telling me I'm going to get crucified? What about this guy? Jesus' response to Peter is somewhat of a rebuke. What is it to you? And then he repeats the invitation. You follow me. Jesus confirms to Peter that it is Jesus who determines and directs each person's path of following. It's unique. To Peter, he says, you're going to be crucified. That's what the idiom, stretch out your hands, meant. He's telling Peter, you will be crucified for your faith. John knew that. All the other disciples knew that when they heard Jesus say these things. But then Jesus says, what if I decide to let John live on for eternity until I return? Until I come back, what if John gets to live? Now, John is writing this gospel in 90-ish A.D. And we know from the early historians in the 200s that at this point, all the other disciples had already died, already been martyred for their faith, but John is still alive. And so this a rumor was going around that at this interaction, Jesus said, I'm going to have John live until I return. And John was worried that the churches might hear that he would die and that they thought, maybe we miss Jesus. Or perhaps all the things in this gospel account were a, a, a lie. They're invalidated because John died and Jesus hadn't returned. So John says, that's not what Jesus said. Jesus said, if I decide this, 
what is it to you? John attests to the fact that Jesus' words were simply an example of how different people's lives look when following Jesus. And Peter shouldn't compare apples to oranges or Peter's to John, right? And neither should we. We should not compare what following Jesus for me looks like and following Jesus for you. But it's a trap that we easily fall into. We ask ourselves things like, why am I not better like that person is? Or, why is this person not better like I am? That's not what being a Christian looks like. You should do this. Why is Jesus not blessing me more like he is that person? Why is my house so small and their house is so large? Why is my job so terrible and they seem to be happy all the time? Why do I keep losing jobs and they've never lost one yet? Why can't I go on vacations like them? Why can't I drive a car like theirs? And you know what? Pastors are not immune to this. This passage in particular is incredibly convicting. Over the last couple of months, I feel like I see myself comparing how I live to everyone around me. My wife and my girls, why can't you just do the right thing like I'm doing? My extended family, you say you're a follower of Jesus. Why aren't you doing this? That's what I'm doing. The people in my life, if you really knew, you would do this. That's what I do. That's what should be done. I see other pastors preaching and I think that's not how you should preach. Preach like me. And on the flip side, I think, why why is my church not like their church? Why doesn't Jesus want to bless me like that? And what's the common thread in all of these questions? Me. It's all about me. I'm not actually following Jesus if I'm the only person that I'm looking at. I'm not actually following Jesus if I'm looking left and right at all the people's lives around me. When I was in high school, our band director had a really intense way of dealing with problems, right? People who were late, people who were talking while he was trying to instruct us. He'd just stop and get super quiet. And he'd wait until everyone in the band was finally silent and looking at him. And he'd take off his glasses and he'd stare at the person and he would say, Really? You think that that's okay? I want you to think hard and ask yourself, What kind of band would it be if everyone in band were like me? Oof. That was like intensely humiliating for people. But not for me. Not for me. Because I am so self-righteous and I am so quick to be able to justify all of my behavior that I always thought of that question. What kind of band would it be if everyone in band were like me? Amazing. We'd have practiced three hours every day. We'd know all of our steps to march in every time. We'd get it right. But it would be a band of saxophone players only. (laughs) Right? Our penchant for self-justification enables us to think so highly of ourselves. We can find attitudes and behaviors and thoughts and actions that lead us to think, what kind of church would it be If everyone in church followed Jesus like me, it would be awesome. 
Because I'm the only one around here who's fun. So we'd have a fun church. It's awesome because I'm the only one around here who's right. I'm the only one who cares. I'm the only one who votes correctly. I'm the only one who gives enough of my time, enough of my money. I'm the only one who actually loves other people. I'm the only one who's thoughtful enough, who's well-read enough, who's loving enough. And if everyone followed Jesus just like I followed Jesus, finally, the church would be amazing. That's the heart of comparison. It leads us away from Jesus and into the depths of our self, selfishness. And the reality is, if everyone in church followed Jesus like you, it would be terrible. It wouldn't be church, it would be a cult. Following Jesus looks like not comparing what He's doing in my life with what He's doing in your life. Or what He's not doing in my life with what He's not doing in your life. The way that He exposes sin in my life is different than the way He exposes sin in your life. The sin He exposes is different in my life than in your life. The way that He works resurrected life into your life is different than the way He works it into my life. It's different. Each story, each path of following Jesus, it's not a competing path. It's a different focal point through which we see a different aspect of Jesus' love and care for His people. Like facets on a diamond. As you turn it, you get a different perspective of light. A different radiance from a different point of view. We need each other in the ways that Jesus is working in you different than the way He's working in me to reveal more of Himself to us. But we're not following each other, not comparing to one another, but following Jesus. It's such a challenge. It's such a challenge because each one of us has in our pocket a comparison device. Our cell phones, our, the social media, right? It's just a, a machine that leads you to comparison. All of those posts, all of those pictures... It calls to you and says, look at who I am. Look at what I have. Look at what I've done. Look at what I think. Look at what I know. And we can't help but compare ourselves to all of that. But what does Jesus say? Look at me. Look at what I've done for you. Look at how much I love you. Follow me. When Nicole and I were dating, we went on a hike in the Blue Ridge Mountains uh, of North Carolina, and it's called Linville Gorge. And you start in this parking lot next to a beautiful river, you kind of meander your way up the side of the mountain until you get to this observation deck that lets you look out over this giant gorge and this huge waterfall, Linville Falls. And so we get to the top, it's my first time on the hike. And I'm enjoying the view. It's great. It's the fall, so the leaves are all changing colors. Beautiful. And we get to this observation deck, and Nicole says, follow me. And then she climbs up and over the railing of the observation deck. Now, quick intro to myself. I'm what we call a rules follower. And so this terrified me. 
And I could hear all my warnings in my head saying, you don't want to go over. There's a reason that there's a railing there. There's a reason that no one else is going over there. There's a reason I can hear this person saying, she shouldn't be doing that. Why is she going over the ledge? I hear a parent telling their kid, that's not obeying the rules. We don't live like that. (laughs) And yet, I trusted her. Didn't want to look like a scaredy cat and wanted to follow her because we're dating and I want to appear, you know, manly. And so... I climb over the railing, and her mom and dad climbed over the railing, her sister did too, and we skittered down the side of the rock until we landed on this big shelf, rock shelf, that sticks out into the gorge. There's no one else around, no trees to obstruct your view, and we sat and we picnicked together and we enjoyed this terrifying but beautiful experience. When Jesus invites us to follow him, It feels concerning. It might feel terrifying. And it might feel like death. But as someone who has been through death and into resurrected life, we trust that Jesus knows where He is leading us and why He is leading us there. We don't look at what other people are doing or what other people are saying. We don't compare our stories to each other's. We see that Jesus is at work in the lives of the people around us. And when we do, we see Jesus who says, follow me. Let's pray. Oh God, we come before you and we confess that it is hard to follow. We confess that we do think we know what's right. We do think we know how to get better. But I pray that we would, through the power of your Spirit, trust the words of Jesus that we would trust His life, His death, and resurrection so that we follow Him into it. I pray that even though confession, repentance, selflessness, and service might feel like death, I pray that we would believe from them in Jesus comes new life. We cannot do this on our own. We can only do it with Your help. So send your spirit to us to help us. We pray in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen.